Believe it or not, I wanted to have a PowerPoint, and I forgot to do it. Um, what I was going to do is show some pictures of money. $1 bill, $5 bill, $10 bill, quarters, nickels, and dimes. And what do we call these? How do we distinct, or we don't, I mean, we call it money, but then what are all the different ones called? What's the difference between a $1 bill and a $50 bill? Besides the fact that I never have $50 bills. We call them denominations, different denominations of money. The fives and the tens and the twenties. Different denominations, and we call them that because they're all different. A $1 bill does not have the same value as a 50 or a $100 bill, so we call them denominations. And denominations in itself means differences. If it was all the same, it would just be money. But we call them different denominations of money. And so I want to talk this morning about where the different denominations came from. You know, one of the big arguments people, uh, non-Christians, give to Christians is if there's one God, why are there so many churches? And so that's what I want to look at this morning. If you study the Word of God, you can just pretty much, without knowing what's going on in the world, you could predict the denominations uh, arising without even knowing the history of the denominations. So let's look first at what the Bible says, and then let's look at history and see if they match up. Now, I would like to think that that everyone is, is saved, and there's only one church, and we're all going to the same place, going just different directions, like we hear a lot. But that's not what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? When Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus asked His disciples, He says, who do men say that I am? And they begin to answer him. They said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elias. And Jesus asked them, said, but who do you say that I am? See, these men had traveled with Jesus, and so they knew him. So he said, said okay, everyone else believes this. What do you, who do you say that I am? And Jesus said, you are the Christ, or the King, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered Peter, and said, that was right. And he said, upon this rock, on the fact that I'm the Son of God, I will build my church. Jesus said that he would build his church. He would build one church. He doesn't say uh, denominations or congregate or uh, different churches. He said, I will build my church. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner, beginning of verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring or trying to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Paul explains that there is one body. Of course, he explains earlier in Ephesians that the body is the church of Jesus, uh, the church is the body of Christ. He says there's one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Here Paul says that there is only one faith, there is only one church or one body. But let's go back to Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. One of Jesus' earliest uh, sermons. In Matthew 7 and verse 15, Matthew says, 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Jesus warns the people. He's giving them his teachings about his father and the way to get to heaven. He said, now, you need to be careful about false teachers because they're out there and they're going to come to you. And just like a, a, a wolf or a coyote or a bobcat tries to sneak in and eat the weak animals, the false prophets are going to come in too. He says, in, he says they look innocent on the outside. They look like sheep. But inside they're ravenous wolves. You know, Peter said the same thing. In Second Peter chapter 2, he's talking about during Old Testament times. Second Peter 2 and verse 1, he says, But there were also, because he's just talked about holy men of God that, that wrote the Bible down, the Old Testament. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not matter. Jesus said, I will build my church. Paul said there is one faith and one body. But then Peter and, and Jesus also went on to say, but even though there's only one church, there's going to be false teachers come in and they're going to bring other doctrines in. That's what Paul said to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. Paul writes these Galatians and he says, I marvel, I am surprised, I am amazed that you are turning away so soon Jesus hadn't been dead but just a few years. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. There were already false teachings then. Before the Bible had ever been written or finished, there were false teachings. He says, which, he talks about a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And Paul gives this warning. But even if we, who's we? The apostles. If we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. If an angel came down through this ceiling and started preaching something different from what we have here, Paul says, let him be accursed. Even in Paul's time, there were already false uh, false teachings. Now, Paul explained to the Ephesian elders a little bit about how this was going to work. When he was traveling and he was in Miletus, he called for the Ephesian elders and they came to him and he was talking to them. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 20, Paul tells them, he says, I kept back. Nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house. In verse 26, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Whatever you need, anything you need to know, I have given that to you. If you choose not to obey that, I'm innocent because I have done all I can do. 
I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now, now he gives the, uh, the uh, elders a warning. He says, therefore, take heed. Be careful. Pay attention. Watch out. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God or to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among your own selves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that for the space of three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul says that there was going to be false teachings that's going to happen two ways. One, there were going to people, come, there were going to be people come into the church. Like Peter said, wolves and sheep's clothing, people that looked innocent, that acted like our friends, that wanted to be a part of the, the church. But inside they were ravenous wolves. But then Paul gives something else. He says, also, not only is that going to happen, but also from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. That's what John wrote about in Second John, or Second uh, John, verse nine. Where Second John's a hard book to find. John says in verse nine, "I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, a man, sounds like he was a Greek, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us." Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. What was his problem? John says he loved to have the preeminence of men. Have you ever worked with someone or maybe even gone to church with someone that just liked to be the big shot? They weren't content to let everyone do their thing. They wanted to run the show. They wanted to be the big shot. They wanted people to look up to them and think they were something special. John said there were people like that in the church. Paul warned that men would rise up and draw disciples after them. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here Paul gets into some, or yeah, Paul gets into some specifics about some of the false teachings that were going to happen. First Timothy chapter four and verse one. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to dece- uh, deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Here's some things he says that they're going to teach once they depart from the faith. Forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So these are some of the false doctrines that Paul said was uh, going to come along. While we're in Timothy, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 2, Paul warns Timothy, he says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Why? Because the time is going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And one more verse, 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, I don't think there's four of them. 
Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, there were some people coming in saying that the day of the Lord had already passed. And in verse 3, Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, the judgment day, will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, or so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul says that before judgment day comes, that there's going to be a falling away. People are going to leave the church. And he talks about a person here who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? <clears throat> but Paul says, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawlessness will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawlessness, lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, that's a, that's a lot of reading right there. So what we've, what we've read so far is that Jesus was preaching the Word of God. But He said there are going to be false prophets. Peter warned that there are going to be false prophets who are going to come in among us. Paul said that they were going to be ravenous wolves that would uh, come in also from within the church. False teachers would rise. They talked about they would forbid to marry. They would uh, command to abstain from meats. And then Paul talks to the Thessalonians about this lawlessness one who sits and acts as if he is God himself. Uh, we also read where it said that people would have itching ears. They wouldn't be interested in the truth because they had things that they wanted rather than what God wanted. So you can see that uh, how in the beginning there was one church, but then everybody, Paul and Peter and Jesus and everyone, predicted that there were going to be a lot of churches. So how does history, what does history show? Does it line up with what God says? Well, in the beginning, in the... After Jesus' death, he established the church, and sure enough, there was one church. But then pretty soon, uh, we remember how in the church, each congregation has elders. Uh, Denton has elders, and Gunner has elders, and all the churches have elders, and we take care of ourselves just like a family. I don't tell Danielle how to run her family. I don't tell Matt how to run his family. Quincy doesn't tell me, or Yancey doesn't tell me. We all take care of our own family. And that's the way a congregation is. We have elders. Paul said, take heed to the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. And so the churches, the congregations were autonomous, but we're all members of one church. But then, sure enough, like Paul predicted, men uh, from within the elders began to rise up. And it got to be that we're within a congregation, rather than having a plurality of elders, two or three or four or five that work together, one man got to be more important. And he got to be called the bishop, and the rest of the elders were called presbyters. 
Now, we re- if we study, we read that these are all the same office, just different names. And then it got to be where not only was one elder in the church more important than the others, kind of like president or something, but then it got to be where there were five cities where these churches were more important than the other churches, and they began to exercise authority over all the other churches. It'd be kind of like if La Prada, one of the elders over there, decided that he was going to be over all the churches in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so he was over us, and he was over Gunner and Sherman and all the churches around. Was that what the Bible teaches? Of course not, but that's what happened. <clears throat> so there were five cities over there in the, in the Mediterranean area in uh, where uh, these bishops took power over... Uh, different areas. And then as time went on, it got to be where one of the cities, that bishop, was even over all the other bishops. You know what city that is? That was Rome. Uh, Let's see here. Originally, the word Pope, which means father, it comes from Greek and Latin, was applied to all the Western bishops, but about 500 A.D. it began to mean Rome's bishop. In uh, the mid-400s, Leo I claimed that he was, by by appointment, primate of all bishops. That doesn't mean primate like uh, gorillas and monkeys, but that's a religious term. means a a head or leader or something like that. So uh, Leo I said that he was over all bishops. And he said that resistance to his authority was a sure way to hell. And not only that, but he advocated the death penalty for heresy. He said, everybody better be doing what I say, and if you don't, we can kill you. That was in uh, the 5th century. If you remember, the Roman Empire began to grow before the time of Christ, and during Christ's time on earth, the Roman Empire was at its peak. It was at its zenith. It occupied almost the entire, or ruled, Almost the entire known world. It didn't rule over China in, in the Far East. Just about everything. In the United States, hadn't been, or the, the Western Hemisphere hadn't been discovered. So Rome pretty much ruled over everything. But then it began a slow decline. And it finally divided between the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. But then in about 457, uh, about 500, the Roman Empire finally ceased to exist and it went back like it used to be where you had all these just little kingdoms and cities and and little states and when that happened that paved the way for the Pope to start having uh, influence and sway and power over all these little kingdoms and so he began to, to exert not just spiritual power over people but political power also <clears throat> So the fall of the Western Roman Empire opened the door for the Pope. And then Stephen II in the 700s, he convinced a a military leader named Pepin to take the lands from the Lombards and give it to the Pope himself. And the Lombards owned or uh, controlled a large part of central Italy, which is where Rome is. So now the Pope became not just a spiritual leader, but also an earthly king because he had his own lands now. Remember, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. But now the Pope had some land also. And this lasted until 1870 when uh, King Emmanuel took over Rome 
in some wars, took the land back. Now, during this time, some of the doctrines that were introduced by different popes and other leaders, one of them was uh, Innocent III uh, instituted what what we call transubstantiation. And that means whenever we take the Lord's Supper, bread literally turns into the flesh of Christ, and the fruit of the vine literally turns into the blood of Christ. Is that what happens when we do it? No, but that's what they introduced and said that was the doctrine they introduced. Another thing that they did is uh, one of the popes forbade the reading of the Bible in, in our common language. You could read it in Latin, but you couldn't read it in English or German, whatever you were. They even outlawed you owning a Bible, and you could be put to death for owning a Bible. They also started having church services in Latin. So if I was up here speaking Latin, you guys wouldn't have a clue what was going on. And uh, then I could pretty much tell you anything I wanted to tell you. Um, Another thing was unum sanctum, where they said, We declare, affirm, define, and pronounce that every creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. In other words, to the Pope. They introduced the uh, doctrine of purgatory. Jesus taught about heaven and hell. He told the rich man, said, between heaven and hell is a great gulf so that those who want to pass from here to there can't and they can't go from here to there. Well, the, the Catholic Church introduced the doctrine of purgatory. The reason this was beneficial to the Catholic Church is because they taught that everyone went to purgatory and to get out of purgatory, their family members needed to pay the church money so that they could get out of purgatory and get into heaven. So this was very profitable for the Catholic Church. They had what they call the Inquisition. You've heard of the Spanish Inquisition? And this was uh, just people that went out and they would find people that weren't subject to the, to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, people that had different beliefs, or maybe even people that taught these beliefs, people that owned Bibles. And you could turn somebody in and they would go out and pick you up and they would bring you in and torture you and put you to death. And you wouldn't know whoever had made this accusation against you. They would just uh, come in and, and arrest you and kill you. And there were over a million people killed by the Roman Catholic Church because these people would not subject, subject themselves to the Pope's authority. Leo V in the 1500s, he introduced the burning of heretics. Can you imagine us getting going down the street and getting a, a Baptist and burning him at the stake? How Christian is that? But that's what they introduced. Uh, they commanded, uh, I think this was in the 1800s, they commanded all Catholics to obey the head of the church rather than civil authorities. Remember in Romans, Jesus or uh, Paul said that we should be subject to all authorities for these are the ministers of God. The Catholic church says, no, you be subject to us. You don't do what they say. There was a doctrine of papal infallibility, which means the Pope is infallible. Whatever he says goes. Now get this. Remember I told you to remember 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He sits as though he were God. In the late 1870s, Leo XIII said that he held on this earth the place of the Almighty God. That's exactly what Paul said that someone would do. Other doctrines were uh, you couldn't own a Bible, 
services were in Latin, confession. You remember where you go in and there's a priest on one side and you're in the confessional and you confess your sins. In the Bible we read that we confess our sins to Jesus and he goes to God on our behalf. We don't go to a priest. Um, Jesus said, call no man a father. You remember that? There were also indulgences where you could pay the church and uh, uh, sins and stuff would be taken away just for, for uh, paying money. But then an amazing thing happened. Up until this time, the only way you could get the Bible was if you had another version and you or somebody else sit down and wrote word for word what that Bible said. How long would it take you, after farming the fields all day, to copy someone's Bible so that you would have a version of it yourself? Especially when the Roman Catholic Church was confiscating Bibles and burning them. How hard would it be for you on the Bible? In 1450, the printing press was invented. And then for the first time, everybody could own a Bible. Now you see when the church, the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't allow you to have a Bible, services were in Latin. Uh, the Bible, if you could get one, was in Latin and people didn't, most people didn't speak Latin. You can see how ignorant people were. And that's why we call, one of the reasons we call this the Dark Ages. The, the Catholic Church kept the people in darkness. But then the printing press came along and other men came along like John Wycliffe and Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther came along. Uh, the Wesley brothers, John Wesley, John Calvin, a man named Swingling. Uh, and these men started standing up to the Catholic Church. I'm pretty impressed with Martin Luther because he wrote his 95 theses and other things he had had against the Catholic Church teachings, and he went and nailed it to the church doors in the city. He uh, And he risked death. I mean, they uh, put out a warrant for his arrest, but friends hid him for about a year, and then finally he was able to come back out. But he had enough friends that he was protected, not killed by the Catholic Church. So these men could own their own Bible. Some of them even wrote translations so that the average person could own a Bible. And they began reading it for themselves, and the people could read it for themselves. Remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul says that these, or Luke wrote, I guess, that these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. For the first time, people could do that. And that's why in the United States, we have freedom of religion. It doesn't mean necessarily that you can be a... Uh, devil worshiper and kill other people. You don't have that freedom. But we have a lot more freedom than what they had in Europe where they were burned at the stake for doing what we're doing now. That's why we have religious freedom. But then in the United States, so all these people came, the Quakers and the Puritans and other groups came to the United States to get away from all that kind of stuff and have religious freedom. And that's why we have the country that we have now. And then in the 1800s, we have what we call the Restoration. See, the problem with Martin Luther and these other guys was that they just wanted to reform the Catholic Church. They were taking something that was rotten and no good and corrupted and perverted and trying to fix that. They were trying to reform it. So they came up with some new ideas, but they didn't throw out everything. They kept some of the old stuff. But then there were some men that came along in the United States in the 1800s and they said, we're going to speak where the Bible speaks. We're going to be silent where the Bible is silent. 
In other words, if it's not in here, we're not going to believe it. If it's in here, we're going to do it. And so what they did is they threw out the whole corrupt system and they started from scratch. And that's when we started having uh, churches or uh, the true church like they had in the first century. Well, what about all the other denominations? Well, in the religious world, we have what's called Catholics and Protestants. You and I fall into the Protestant group. The reason it's called Protestant is because people like Martin Luther protested against the Catholic Church. So anyone pretty much that's not in the Catholic Church is a protester or a Protestant, and that would include you and me. Um, But the only trouble was, when these other people were trying to do what was right and get away from what was wrong, a lot of times they introduced their own ideas. They didn't study enough or maybe they had other motives or whatever. And so we still didn't get the true church. And so I just went through and randomly picked some stuff. The Seventh-day Adventists were started pretty much by a man named William Miller. He started reading um, prophecies and Daniel uh, about all these days and years. And he decided that the end of the world was going to come somewhere between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844, based on Daniel's prophecy of uh, 1,230 or 1,260 days, which translates to years. Well, that year, one year period came, and the end of the world didn't come, and so he lost a lot of followers. So they went back and they studied, and said, we made a mistake. So I, we believe the end of the world is going to come on November 22nd, or 1844. Well, that date came and passed, and the end of the world didn't come, and they lost a lot of followers in. But they still didn't lose enough the uh, Seventh-day Adventists are here. And they stick to the, um, they believe that the Ten Commandments are the supreme rule, and that's why they worship on Saturday, the Sabbath. That's why they're called Seventh-day Adventists. There was a Salvation Army. Did you know that the Salvation Army is a church? William Booth, back in the 1800s, was a Methodist, and he went out and started preaching to the drunkards and the poor people on the streets and, I guess, the homeless. And uh, the Methodists didn't want to take all these people in, so he ended up starting his own church. He kind of modeled it after an army. He was called the general, and uh, they used a lot of army terms and stuff. So the Salvation Army is a church started in about 1878. Church of Christ Scientists, a woman named Mary Baker Eddy, one time after reading in the Bible where... um, a leper was healed, said that she miraculously was healed of whatever ailment it was she had, and she started what's called Church of Christ Scientists back in 1866. Then there's the Presbyterians. Their teachings based on John Calvin's teachings. There's the Mormons. Joseph Smith, uh, in the early 1800s, about 1830, up in New York, he said that an angel showed him where some gold plates were, and he translated these gold plates into what's called the Book of Mormon. Now, what did Paul say if an angel comes and teaches you something different? And the Mormons had lots of teachings. They said that the American Indians were uh, descendants of the Jews, that after Jesus was resurrected, uh, he came over to the United States and preached to the Indians. And, uh, of course, they had polygamy and... Lots of other doctrines. So, but they were started in the 1800s. The Methodists were pretty much based on John and Charles Wesley's uh, teachings. 
Of course, the Lutherans are based on Lutheran's teachings. I've heard, but I wasn't able to find while I was studying for this, that Luther, Martin Luther did not want people starting a church and naming it after him. He wanted people to be followers of Christ, but eventually that's what happened. And just a side note, I don't know where to stick this. Uh, one of the things that was introduced during the Dark Ages was instruments in the church. Of course, back then the only instrument was an organ. Originally, there were no instruments in church services. And Martin Luther uh, didn't like this either. He said, I would no sooner sing to God with an instrument than I would pray to God with an instrument. So uh, instrumental music came back during uh, when all those other doctrines were coming in. So you say, well, that's interesting. And that's all historical. That's all fact. But how do we know... That we're the true church? Well, that's a good question. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus tells a parable of the sower. If this was in modern terms, we would call him a farmer. A sower, someone who sows, or someone who plants. And he said a sower went out to sow. And as he did, some of the seed fell on stony ground where it sprang up and then later died. Some of it fell on the weeds where it was choked out. Um... Some of it fell and the birds came and ate it before it could germinate and grow. But some of it fell on good ground. Anytime you take... Oh, and then he explains later. He says the seed is the Word of God. Anytime you take the Word of God and plant it in people's hearts and they do what it says, you will have a congregation of Christ, the church that Jesus started. Now, a lot of churches say, well, we can, the Catholic Church, they can trace their popes all the way from whoever's pope now, all the way back to Peter, they say. Even though for the first 500 years they didn't have popes, and a lot of people within the Catholic Church really objected to that, said that's wrong. The Catholic Church said that we can trace all the popes all the way back to Peter when the church was started. And a lot of congreg- or denominations say that they can trace themselves back to the beginning. Is that important for us to trace ourselves back to the beginning? Well, for you and me it is. I mean, I had a parents who had parents who had parents. I mean, we didn't just appear out of nowhere. But you don't have to do that with the church. We have a church here, and we don't have to trace it back to, to Gunner, who traces theirs back to West Virginia, who traces theirs back to England, who traces theirs back to Jerusalem. Anytime you plant the church or the seed, you've got a church. It would be just like if I lived in Africa or something, and we stumbled across in a used bookstore the rule book for baseball. And we said, this is interesting. You have a bat and you you hit it a ball and then you run. And so they they showed it to their friends and said, look at this. This is why don't we try this? And so you read the directions and you read what the bases are and how far apart they are. You get out your tape measure, you measure a square and you put home plate here in first, second, and third and you get nine people on each team. you got a shortstop, a pitcher, a catcher, a batter, the batter's box. And you start playing baseball. What do you have? You've got a baseball game, don't you? 
Can you trace it back to the United States? Well, of course not. None. I mean, we're over here in Ethiopia. We've never seen, we don't have TVs. We've never seen baseball. We've never heard of baseball. I just ran across this book and started doing what it says. But you know what? You've got a real honest to goodness baseball game, just like we play here in the United States, even though you never saw it before. Why? Because you're following the same rules. Anytime we take God's word and do what it says, we will have one of Christ's church. We will be worshiping like they said. Why does, if there's only one faith, if there's only one body, like we said earlier, why are there so many churches? Why does God allow this? Wouldn't it be easier if he just appeared in clouds and and told everybody that's wrong, said, you're wrong, that's not what I said, do it my way. Seems like things would be simpler, wouldn't it? Frank Turek says that God has given us the opportunity to either love him or reject him without violating our free will. God put us on here on earth and he allows us to make our own decisions. We're not animals. We don't just follow instincts and not have a clue what's going on. We can make our own decisions. And we can choose either to follow God or to reject him. In 2 Thessalonians, that we already read chapter 2, talked about the lawlessness one. Uh, talks about this man that would come with all unrighteousness, unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. And Paul explains, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure and unrighteousness. I would like to believe that everyone is honest hearted but that's just not the way it is Paul talked about the ravenous wolves Jesus talked about the wolves in sheep's clothing the false prophets not everyone has a good heart and God allows the people that don't have pleasure in the truth to be deceived he doesn't come down here and force everyone to do his will Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says but without faith it is impossible to believe, please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. It means a lot to God when we trust him. Remember when God told Abraham to take his only son? God had said, I'm going to give you a son. And from this son, or sons, he didn't specify. He said, I'm going to make of you a great nation and I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land that you're going to call your own. But Abraham didn't have a son. And he finally got that son when he was an old man. And, and uh, Isaac was growing. And then one day God calls Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take this son. And I want you to take him up on this mountain. And I want you to sacrifice him to me. Abraham says, God, you you promised me a son. You promised that you were, I was going to have a lot of descendants. And now you want me to kill this son? Is that what Abraham said? No. It says that Abraham staggered not at the promise through unbelief. 
He believed that if necessary, God would raise Isaac up from the dead. Abraham went up and he was going to do what God said in full faith, knowing that even with Isaac's death, God would still fulfill his promises. By faith, Abraham did that. And that's the faith that God wants us. He does not want us uh, to force us to do his will. He wants us to believe him. I would like to think that everyone in this world is saved. That's what people say, you know. If there's a God how could he that loves us so much, how could he send people to hell? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus warned to enter at the narrow gate. He says, because most people are going to go through the broad gate that's easy, and not many are going to find the narrow gate that's difficult. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, Judgment Day, say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and done many wonderful things? And Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Jesus is saying there's a lot of people that are worshiping him that think they're going to heaven that aren't. Those aren't my words. That's what Jesus said. That's the harsh realities. Matthew chapter 7, verse 26, the Sermon on the Mount again. He says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man that built his house on the rock. He that does not do them. There are people that refuse to do what Jesus says. In Matthew 15, he got on, Jesus got on to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, in vain they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. There are a lot of men that would rather get up here and teach what they believe, what they want, rather than what Jesus wants. We read 2 Timothy chapter 4 where he talks about people having itching ears. They just want to hear different things. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear that they're wrong. I worked with a guy at the fire station and uh, he and his girlfriend went to church. I think she was a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. And they went to church and he was real devout. He didn't cuss. He's one of the nicest guys I knew. But they weren't married, but they were sleeping together. People just don't want to be told that they're wrong. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read uh, where Jesus talked about people that do not have the love of the truth. In John chapter 12, Jesus talks about the people who love the praise of men more than the praise of God. I would love to believe that everyone's saved and that we're all going to the same place, just different ways. But that's simply not what the Bible teaches. A lot of people that claim to be, or that are religious have a lot of different motivations beside the truth. So how do we solve the problem? Well, you know the answer. Because you watch Sunday afternoon football. And the two teams are out there playing. And then there's a problem on the field. A possible penalty. And what do the referees do? They get together. Now, they don't have to pull out the rule book because these guys got it all up here. And they discuss it. What does the rule book say? What did he do? What did he do? What are we supposed to do? They discuss it according to the rules. And if we would just take the the word of God and not love the praise of men, if we would love the truth, if we could get rid of our ideas and just get Jesus' ideas, there would be one church. We would be unified. Because I've talked about there's too many other motivations for people uh, other than the truth. 
Uh, I'm sure that Mike McCorkle probably will talk more about where other denominations came from and why we don't agree on the Bible some other time. I'll get him to do that. This morning we offer the invitation and we would urge you, if there's a change you need to make in your life, to make up your mind this morning to make that change. We'll stand and sing.